We are continuing with our study through Paul's first Timothy, uh, Paul's first letter to Timothy. Uh, we know that he left Timothy uh, in the city of Ephesus to serve as the pastor of the church there. Paul had warned that church five years earlier. The Lord had given him insight that false teachers were going to arise from within that church, even from among the elders themselves, and these false teachers were just going to wreak havoc on the local church. So Paul wants Timothy to address the things because those things were, in fact, happening. He wants Timothy to confront the teachers with strange doctrines that they were teaching. But it's not only dealing with the teaching that's so damaging and unhelpful. Paul also is emphasizing the need to teach sound doctrine. So address the things that are wrong, but also make sure the things that are correct are being emphasized. And that doctrine needs to be consistent with the gospel. It must be a doctrine that's focused on the goal of love to God and love to people. There was also some confusion about the purpose of the law of God. These teachers were using the law to communicate mystical, fanciful ideas, things that were not taught in the scriptures. But then Paul wants to make it clear that he said, I'm not telling you to avoid the law of God. God's law is good and helpful if it's used according to how God intended it. So we looked at three purposes last week for God's law. First, God gave his law to be used as a restraint on those who would do wrong. And that happens as the work of the law is written on our hearts, which reveals itself through our conscience and actually works as a restraint. God also works, also works as a restraint when it's expressed through civil laws that threaten people with consequences if the laws are broken. So that's another aspect of the restraint aspect of the law. Second, God gave his law to make it clear that those who break God's law are under God's condemnation. Our disobedience gives evidence of a heart that's rebellious towards God, and it shows us how desperately we all need a Savior. So the law brings us to Christ by pointing out our sin. And third, God gave his law as a help toward the spiritual growth of Christians. God uses it to convict us of our sin, to show us where we're wrong, but also to give clarity on what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And in that sense, as Christians, the law of God has become the law of Christ to us. It was this focus then on the lawful use of God's law that led the apostle to speak with such glowing words then about the gospel. He calls it the glorious gospel, the gospel that glorifies the character of God. It's the gospel in conjunction with God's law that reveals God's righteousness and his justice. The gospel makes it clear, again, in conjunction with God's law, that we fall short of that perfect righteousness and are under his condemnation. But the gospel also glorifies the love and the grace of God. That's because the gospel tells us how God sent his son into the world to purchase salvation for sinful people. Well, as Paul then is speaking, writing about the glorious gospel, it leads him to digress a little bit and begin to talk about how the gospel had changed his life. The gospel not only points to sound doctrine, which it does, which every Christian believes, it also speaks of how hearts are changed, how lives are actually changed. It speaks of the affectionate love that believers actually have for their Lord. So in actuality, even though this is technically a digression from what he was going to say, 
It fits exactly because it's, it's an example of how the gospel actually changes someone's life. Well, all that kind of comes spilling out of Paul in verses 12 to 17. We're going to focus on 12 to 15 this week, and then we'll finish this paragraph next week. So let me read those verses for you. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I act ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It's a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Calling the title of this sermon, The Glorious Gospel, because really everything that Paul says in these verses comes out of the fact of him considering the transforming effect of this glorious gospel on his life. So our first main point is this. There are great benefits to focus to focusing on the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Just to focus on it. You remember last week that we said the word for blessed, which is used in verse 11, the word for blessed God means happy. So Paul is speaking of the glorious gospel of the happy God. Part of God's glory is his complete happiness in being God, in being the God of our salvation. Jesus said, enter into the joy of your master. Well, Paul's words in these verses show that that's exactly what he did. He entered into the joy of his master. Well, the first aspect of Paul's response shows us that a focus on the glorious gospel leads to heartfelt gratitude, heartfelt gratitude for the privilege of serving him. So after speaking of the glorious gospel of the blessed God that he had been entrusted with, Paul says this in verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Paul is just amazed at the privilege he's been given to serve the Lord. He's been entrusted with the gospel, sharing it with others, making sure it's not compromised like was happening in Ephesus. But when you think about what Paul's service for the Lord was like, you kind of get a more complete picture of this thanksgiving. This was not just a top-of-the-head, thank you, Lord. I mean, he was told from the beginning that when he was converted, that he was going to suffer much for the sake of the Lord, and he did. He actually, back in 2 Corinthians 11, he gives a very detailed description of what that suffering looked like. It's in verses 21 to 29. He says, he says, in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I far more so in, more, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, 
dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure of me of, cons- on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without me being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? In that context, Paul says, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of serving you. That's what the context was. He is truly grateful for doing that. Paul also thanks the Lord for the strength he's been given for his service. I mean, going through so much pain and suffering that we just kind of went through would crush most people, and Paul knows that. He has only been able to serve the Lord through those many trials because Christ Jesus the Lord strengthened him, enabled him to do it. He says that God considered him faithful, which probably means that the Lord really enabled him to be faithful. He sustained him bodily, but more importantly, sustained his faith in the midst of those really hard trials. Paul, of course, was called an apostle. To be an apostle, he was one of the men that God used to lay the very foundation of the church of Christ as he was enabled to write uh, scripture. None of us fit in that same category. But God in his grace calls every believer to serve him. It's not to be done out of drudgery, but to be done out of thanksgiving to the Lord for being called to serve him, to being called as his child. So as we think about the glorious gospel of the happy God, we too will have a heartfelt gratitude for being able to serve him. The next blessing Paul speaks of is this, a focus on the glorious gospel serves as a reminder of the mercy received from the Lord that is completely undeserved. So as Paul gives thanks for the privilege of serving the Lord, he reminds himself that he was not worthy in any way. Verse 13, even though you, see, you put me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I act ignorantly and unbelief. So Paul is very blunt as he describes what he was before he put his faith in Christ. He says he was formerly a blasphemer. In other words, he spoke evil of the name of Jesus Christ and did everything he did to get other people to speak evil of Christ as well. He was also a persecutor. It says he was a violent aggressor. He went after people who identified themselves as believers that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, Acts 26.11, where he talks about uh, kind of what describing himself, he says, as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. He was a brutal, vicious, bloody man. His goal was to completely exterminate the way, I mean, the, the Christian faith, to get rid of everyone and everything. It was in this context that the Lord showed him mercy. God purposefully intervened in his life as Paul was on his way to continue persecuting Christians who were in Damascus. And Paul was shown mercy 
In other words, he get, didn't get what he deserved. He deserved God's judgment. He deserved God's condemnation for the way he was acting, for the things he was doing. But he didn't get what he deserved because the Lord showed mercy on him. Paul then adds that he was shown mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. What he's not doing here is making an excuse for his behavior. He had no excuse. He was completely guilty. Yes, he was ignorant. He didn't realize that Jesus was, in fact, the promised Messiah. But he could have studied the issue more carefully. In fact, he was present when Stephen testified of Christ, of Jesus as the Christ, before the Sanhedrin, just before he was stoned to death, which Paul participated in. He heard a very clear presentation of the gospel, but he refused to believe it. Matter of fact, you could say he violently rejected it. What Paul is saying here is that he did not defy God to his face like some of the Pharisees did. You may remember, this is back in Mark 3, Jesus spoke to some of the Pharisees about their unbelief. Which, well, here's what it says. It's uh, Mark 3, 28 to 30. It says, Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying of Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. Paul is saying in this verse here in 1 Timothy, he did not blaspheme in that same way. That's not what he did. Instead, he was more like the Jews at Pentecost that Peter was addressing, telling them they had crucified the Lord of glory, but then he also said they committed this horrible sin in ignorance. Paul is putting himself in that same group. Peter was offering forgiveness for them but, and holding them guilty of what they, what the part they played in Christ's forgiveness. But he also adds they did it in ignorance. Paul is making that application for himself. But again, he's not excusing himself in any way. I mean, the words he used to describe himself are very descriptive, and you could say even harsh, and he's talking about himself. I believe this is something we can learn from. Many years ago, I know I've shared this before, but many years ago I was in a conference that uh, C.J. Mahaney was speaking, and he made this statement that has stuck with me for years. It's on your outline. He said simply, don't ever forget where you came from. Don't ever forget where you came from. Paul brought up his sinful way of life at various times to emphasize God's mercy in saving him, and not only saving him, but putting him into the Lord's service. Seeing these words, I've been asking myself this week, how would I characterize my life before I became a Christian? Paul is using these words to describe himself. How would I describe my life? I don't have the kind of drastic, violent things in my past that Paul did. Most of us probably don't. In fact, I was very good. As I've shared before, I was in church probably at least three times a week from the time I was old enough to be in the nursery. I was a good kid. I didn't do things that 
other teenagers often got involved in, my friends and so forth. So it's a little more challenging to start thinking, how would I describe my sins before Christ? Some of you may have some uh, same issue with this. Well, let me tell you what I've come up with. No, I didn't get involved with some of the same sins, some of the same things that friends I had in high school were doing, but I wanted to. And the only reason I didn't is because I was afraid of my dad (laughs) and what would happen if he found out. Nothing godly. I was just afraid because I wanted, my heart went after the same things that they were doing. And even though I was in church often during the week, often I didn't really want to be there, especially as I got a little older. Sometimes I resented it. I wouldn't pay much attention to the sermon. I would not sing the hymns as if in some aspect of worship, if I sang them at all. That's sin. That's what's my heart. That was my heart. At home, I didn't give my parents a lot of, a lot of problems. Um, I think they would agree with that. But I do remember resenting a lot of things. I remember, and this may sound simple to you, but it's kind of something that's stuck in my mind from many years ago. Sunday dinner was a big meal. Fried chicken, mashed potatoes, all the fixings and stuff. We always had a big meal right after church on Sunday. I remember doing this often, making sure I ate and sneak out of the house as quick as I could so I wouldn't have to help with the dishes. Go out and play in the woods. Um, or play ball. We're always playing ball, doing something. That's not what God meant by honoring your parents. So yes, I was a good kid on the outside, but my heart was evil. My heart was evil. I think it's easy for people who are basically good to think that we're not as deserving as hell as other people are, and that's not true. That is not true. I was as deserving as hell of hell as the people who are known for their acts of rebellion against God. I used to envy people who had those kind of testimonies, who had all kinds of really awful things in their past, you know, because they had, I didn't have that kind of stuff. But I began to realize, thank God I don't have those things in my past. But at the same time, my heart is just as evil, just as evil. So don't try to downplay the sin in your life. The more we downplay our sin, the more we rob God of his glory. The gospel is glorious because God gave his son for the salvation of sinners. If we have the idea that, well, I'm really not that bad, then we're giving the indication that we might have actually been good enough on our own to go to heaven. And that's not true. So the more we minimize our sin, we take glory away from God for what he's accomplished on our behalf in salvation. So give some careful thought to what God has saved you from, and then don't forget it. Remember it when you come, when you come to the Lord. As C.J. Mahana said, don't ever forget where you came from. 
The third blessing of remembering the glorious gospel is this. A focus on the glorious gospel leads to rejoicing in the abundant grace of the Lord. Paul was grateful that God had shown him mercy, which means he did not get the eternal condemnation that he deserved. Now, after highlighting what a wretched person he had been, he now rejoices in God's grace. So not only did God not give him what he deserved, instead he lavished grace on him. He lavished his divine favor on him. Verse 14, Paul rejoices that the grace of our Lord was more than abundant. The word suggests an overflowing supply. It's like a river flooding its banks with God's love toward Paul. It's an overflowing of grace. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was very moved by this verse. In reference to 1 Timothy 1, 14 and 15, he entitled his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. He saw application in his life as well. An appreciation of God's abounding grace will only come with an understanding of our sin. If we think we're a pretty good person, we might think, well, a trickle would have been fine with me. I didn't really need that much help. I just needed maybe a cup full. No. You need as much as Paul. You need an overflowing abundance of grace to save you, whoever you are. Every one of us need that same abundant supply. And God gives it. That's what's amazing. He gives it. So two things that Paul worked, that God worked in Paul's life and bring, bringing to applying this abundant grace to him. First, he helps, Paul helps us to see that it's by God's grace in Christ that one has saving faith, that one has saving faith. One of the main group uh, fruits of God's abundant grace is faith. <coughs> Paul didn't have faith. <coughs> he was very religious, but he didn't have faith. He says in verse 13, he acted in unbelief. But when Christ made himself known to him on the Damascus road, he changed his heart. Paul was enabled to see that Jesus really was the Christ. He was and is Lord. And as the Lord directed his superabounding grace toward Paul, Paul believed. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one can boast. His life demonstrated that truth, and what he says here in 1 Timothy confirms it as well. <clears throat> Back in verse 5, Paul talked about the importance of love from a sincere faith. That sincere or genuine faith comes by God's flood of grace. That's where it comes from. So this is a key part of the glorious gospel of the blessed God. He gets the glory because salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. He even provides the faith that we need. It's not a faith that we can gin up on our own. It's the gift of God, and that's something to rejoice about. The second thing that's a product of God's superabundant grace that's worth rejoicing about is this. It's by God's grace in Christ that one has genuine love. That one has genuine love. Note, by the way, that both faith and love come to us in Christ. It is Jesus Christ who purchased salvation for sinners. 
He is the only mediator between God and man. God the Father purposed salvation to be accomplished in this way. Therefore, the faith and love that come to believers can only come to us through Christ. So not only does God in his abundant grace give faith, saving faith to believers, he also gives love. It's in Christ and by God's grace that Christians are inclined to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's in Christ and by God's grace that Christians are inclined to love their neighbor as themselves. We love because he first loved us. In fact, 1 John says that love is one of the evidences that a person has been truly born again. Again, very direct, pointed verse. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God. New birth. And they know God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, you might also note another connection here with 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul was highly critical of the teachers who were teaching strange doctrines, paying attention to myths, endless genealogies, he calls them. He said, that's not what the focus should be of the local church. Instead, the goal of our instruction is love, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And he says that because that's exactly what God and his superabounding grace, what God actually calls us to happen to all who trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. He doesn't save us to give our lives to trivial things. He saves us to glorify God by loving him and loving our neighbor so that everything we do in life is to be an outgrowth of our love for God. It's all connected, whatever menial the task may seem to be in your mind. What we do, we do to please our God, to show our love for him. Now, every one of us falls short of that of doing that all the time. As Christians, though, we want that to be the case. And so we encourage one another and we learn together to try to continue to move in that direction of growing in love. So Paul makes it clear to us in this digression that there are so many wonderful benefits by being occupied, by reminding ourselves of the gospel of the blessed God. Well, in the 15th verse, Paul continues with his focus on the gospel, but he does it in a different way. Verse 15 says, It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. So our second main point is this. The glorious gospel of the blessed God is summarized by the church in trustworthy sayings to help ensure it is regularly and clearly remembered. Paul introduces what he's going to say in verse 15 by calling it a trustworthy or faithful saying. First, what he's saying is, is that the words that follow here are 100% accurate. They're trustworthy. This is not like some rumor, a news report you see and you think, I wonder if that's really true. It's not like that. This is fully trustworthy. This is not something that can be explained simply by saying, well, that's just your opinion. No, it's, that's not true at all. What is being said is completely trustworthy. It's completely true. 
It's also important to note that this phrase, trustworthy statement or faithful saying, however it's translated in your translation, is used five different times in the pastoral letters. Three times in 1 Timothy, once in 2 Timothy, and once in Titus. The only place it's used. And it seems like what Paul is doing is he's actually quoting from some creeds or confessions of faith that the early church had developed. And these creeds were used to summarize what the church believed with a special focus on what they believed about Jesus Christ. The early church did not have access to the scriptures like we do. 1 Timothy was written in 62 AD. In my opinion, uh, I think it's likely that all the books of the New Testament were probably finished by 70 AD. But even then, the church did not have easy access to these books. So one of the important ways that they kept themselves focused on true Christian doctrine was by these creeds and confessions. They would memorize them and use them in their worship services. So I believe the trustworthy statement that Paul is referring to is taken from an early creed. That's what they called their creeds, these trustworthy statements that he knew the church would be familiar with. George Knight, this is on your outline, made this observation about these statements. He says, with these faithful sayings, we have come to the self-conscious, creedal, liturgical expressions of the early church of its faith and life. So in other words, they give us insight into one of the things that was part of their worship service. There were confessions to make sure they were staying true to sound doctrine. Now, we're going to look at this statement even in more detail next week, but there's a couple things I want to point out this week. First is this. The glorious gospel deserves to be fully accepted by all. Deserves to be fully accepted by all. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is a wonderful summary of central gospel truth. And as Paul said, it's a trustworthy saying. The only logical and proper thing to do when you're presented with something that is obviously true is to believe it. Anything else would be foolish. Christ Jesus did, in fact, come into the world to save sinners. That is absolutely true, and all people are called to accept that fact, that truth. All are called to believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. And we should notice that this statement is not only worthy of acceptance, it's worthy of full acceptance. It's to be accepted without any reservations. It's to be accepted without any qualifications. In other words, it's not permissible for a person to say that you believe some parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you reject other parts. It requires full acceptance. You can't say that I believe the gospel is right for me, but it's not the only way a person can be right with God. The gospel doesn't give you that option. It just doesn't give it to you. You also can't say, well, I believe in Jesus to save me from hell, but I don't want to accept Jesus as Lord of my life. That's not an option. The gospel is deserving of full acceptance. You don't pick and choose the parts you like the best. The second thing I want to point out is this. As remarkable as it seems, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, actually came into the world to save sinners. 
That really happened. John 1, John chapter 1, tells us that Jesus Christ created the world. Now we see here they actually came into the world that he himself created. The eternal Son of God came into the world as the promised Messiah, as the Christ. The world he came into can be described as sinful, blind, even hostile to God and to his word. The world is full of evil. It's full of sinners, like, like us. And Christ Jesus came into the world to provide salvation for men, women, boys, and girls who actually hate him. <laughs> he accomplished that salvation in real time and space. It happened in the world in which we live. It was decreed in eternity past that, th that in the fullness of time, the Son of God would come to earth as a man. It was decreed in eternity that Christ would suffer and die for all that the Father had given him, and that's exactly what he did. Christ's salvation work was accomplished and completed in the city of Jerusalem. While on the cross, Christ proclaimed, It is finished. All that was necessary for people to be saved was completed. If you're a Christian, that includes your salvation from beginning to end. Completed. Finished. Then Paul adds an amazing biographical statement. At the end, he says, among whom I am foremost of all, that wasn't part of the statement. That's Paul's addition. That's Paul's personal, like I said, a biographical note that he adds. He described himself. This was the Apostle Paul. I think most people would rightly say probably one of the best Christians, the most strongest Christians that the world has ever known. He says, describes himself as the foremost of sinners. In other words, don't forget where you came from. Even if you're an apostle, <laughs> don't forget where you came from. But here, and this is important to notice, He's also admitting that he continues to sin. He doesn't say, I was the foremost of all. He says, among whom I am the foremost of all. He is still painfully aware of the fact that he continues to sin. The more mature he gets in his faith, the more aware he is of how he has failed. I mean, I think as you grow in the Christian faith, we can relate to that. You feel like maybe I'm doing better than I did 10, 20 years ago. But man, there's some bad stuff there. And I'm more aware of it now than I ever was. That's what Paul was saying. And that's why the gospel was so precious to him. It was so precious to him. Even after years of serving the Lord as an apostle, he would still do that. What Jesus Christ had done and was continuing to do for him never got old. It never got old. He needs, just as, he needs Christ just as much in his present as he did on that, day, on that day on the road to Damascus. This is a glorious gospel. It truly is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance 
that Christ Jesus did come into the world to save sinners. Lord, we want to thank you for your word. And I want to thank you especially for the gospel that is so prevalent in your word. It's really all through it. The way of salvation shows up in some sense all through the scriptures. And so we thank you for that. And thank you that it truly is a glorious gospel. And I thank you so much for Paul's own testimony where he's not just saying, yes, this is sound doctrine that we all need to stand firm on. We need to know what the trustworthy statement here is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We need to know that. But he's demonstrating for us, this changed my life. This is, what, this is the only way I can describe why I'm different now than I was then. This is why. Lord, thank you for his testimony. And Lord, help us as we continue to make application to ourselves of how you have changed our life, not to forget where we came from, to remember what you saved us out of, but also to continue to remember what you how you are continuing to work that salvation out in us, in Christ. Lord, thank you for your constant help. Thank you that the gospel truly is the glorious gospel. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, the truth is very clear there. And as Paul said, it's a trustworthy statement. In other words, you can trust it. It's true. It is absolutely true. And it's also worthy of your full acceptance. If you've never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize I am a sinner, but I also realize that Jesus did provide salvation for sinners, and I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk about that commitment in more detail, you can make a note on your tear-off. Those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.